Kristen Gagnon, we're back talking about pop can crit. And uh, we heard in part one uh, from a lot of experts uh, in the field uh, uh, trying to answer the question, what is the role of an architecture critic? Who is architecture criticism for? Uh, in this part two episode, we're going to try and look at how... Uh, how the medium has sort of changed with uh, the advent of social media and uh, the democratization of publications like online publications, uh, uh, that sort of thing, and just getting uh, getting people, the layperson, as you said in part one, uh, excited about the, these kind of questions. So uh, uh, having seen uh, the, the conference uh, coming out of it, uh, what do you take away from Is the landscape changing? Is there a crisis? Is there hope for in the future for this kind of thing? Yeah, I, great question. I don't, I don't think there's necessarily a crisis, but I think criticism is at, as I mentioned before, a key point in its history. I think it needs to be reevaluated and refocused, perhaps. And I think the big question is, what is the role of the critic? Um, as you mentioned today, in light of social media and a more democratized press, um, there's this idea now that anybody and everybody can be a critic, and I don't think there's anything that can stop that or the idea that anybody now has access via online publications to express themselves and their own views on any building or space or place. And I think that's a really healthy thing to have, but I think we need to, in light of that, reevaluate them what is the critic and what is the role of the critic. And I personally see this as an opportunity for the critic to redefine the role as advocate and as educator. Um, so yes, anybody who is able to enter a building should and, and can have the right to express their own views on it and whether or not it's a success and why or why not. Um, but I think the critic comes from a background that has and allows for the time and the research and the education to be able to explain the nuances of a project that not anybody or everybody is able to, to do so. So I think it's just about reevaluating the role and changing the role. And so we're going to hear from a lot of people uh, sort of uh, trying to answer the, this question as, as best they can. Uh, but uh, for you, as the person who put this all on, what did you come away uh, from the conference feeling? I came, a, I came away very excited because I think the conference, if anything, showed that there really is an appetite to discuss popular criticism. Um, what has surprised me in my own research is how little attention has been paid to popular criticism, um, perhaps because it's perhaps the opposite of, of an academic form of criticism. But I think if we're being honest with ourselves, it's the form of criticism that's the most important um, because it is being written for the public and it is that form of education that I think is, is lacking in our, in our general um, understanding of our built environment. Um, so I think um, it showed that, yes, there, there's interest both from, from people in the profession, um, definitely the critics themselves, but as well as the public um, in terms of better understanding who is the critic and of what value is popular criticism. All right. And with that being said, we're going to go to the conference, but uh, can you start us off the old way? Great. Sounds good. Three, two, one. This, this is Spacing is Radio. Spacing Thank you. 
We're back in the cloakroom of Carleton University's Israeli School of Architecture in Ottawa, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. For this final segment of our two-part pop-can-crit dive into the world of architectural criticism, we look at the challenges facing the trade. The question, is popular architectural criticism in crisis? You'll hear a whole host of Canada's foremost architecture critics wrestle with a world where everyone's a critic and what that means to their profession. And we hear how the evolving media landscape has changed the way we publish architecture stories and has created new ways for critics to access their audience. But first, I had asked some of our experts who gets to be an architecture critic. We'll hear from... David Theodore, Assistant Professor of the School of Architecture at McGill University. Hi, I'm Sean McAuliffe. I am an uh, editor and writer at Spacing Magazine and a columnist at the Toronto Star. Hi, I'm Marco Polo, a professor in the Department of Architectural Science at Ryerson University. I am Sophie Gironnet. I am co-founder and director of the Maison de l'Architecture du Québec in Montreal and also writer and journalist in architecture. Stand by. And who gets to be an architecture critic? Uh, architecture critics are like many things these days where people get there by chance, by a, a freakish set of accidents. So um, they're usually people who are have some kind of university training, maybe professional training. But yeah, university-educated people who are interested in writing and writing about the stuff that's around them. Um, there's no... Unfortunately, that leaves out a lot of people whose voices you might want to be heard uh, but there doesn't seem to be that's what the that's what the job is well i think everybody gets to be an architecture critic because everybody um well not everybody but almost everybody probably has an opinion about architecture um that is an ugly building or that is a beautiful building i like this building i don't like that building um so at that level everyone is an architecture critic but then uh if you get more into it and you take a bunch of uh, different things into account, um, the history of maybe the project itself, um, the architecture uh, form um, that, the, that, that the building's built with, uh, the context of the building. Um, those are kind of higher levels of criticism, and, um, and, and it takes a lot more work, uh, a lot more research um, to dip into you know, why a building looks the way it does and, and, and think about why or why not it doesn't fit uh, into the city that it's uh, being built in, uh, or why it's beautiful, or why it's ugly. Um, so to have a kind of more robust opinion, it takes a lot of work, and uh, that takes a lot of time and effort, and not everyone has that available to them. So that's why um, uh, architecture critics at that level are few and far between. Well, it's very interesting because there's, in my experience at least, there's a lot of different ways of becoming an architecture critic. Uh, I know some people who have come to it through journalism, so without a particularly architectural background, but um, coming through journalism and then developing an interest and consulting with architects and so forth and developing a, a degree of expertise. And the other direction seems to be people who are architects or trained in architecture who have a particular uh, interest and uh, proclivity for writing. Um, so those are the two main uh, sources, um, and I would say that uh, both are valid. Both have have a slightly different perspective on things, um, and the tendency I think is that the the people who come out of journalism are probably more likely to end up writing in the popular media, the newspapers, and the people who come out of architecture are maybe 
a little too specialized in their language for that kind of audience, so they tend to write for professional journals. And the next question is, who gets to be an architecture critic? Uh, well, it, they come from uh, many, many places, and uh, also they, they write for many different venues. Um, there is no uh, path to become an architecture critic, and I don't think anyone, uh, when, the, when you are young and seven-year-old seven and your uncle asks, what are you going to do when, you'll be, you know, when you will be an adult? You don't re answer, I'll be an architecture critic. No, I don't think so. It's, it's, um, it's something you, you come to do uh, through uh, hazards of, uh, of life, I think. <laughs> The internet and social media has led to a democratization of information. We have unprecedented access to information on any given subject, and everyone has the ability to publish their opinion. In this panel, Rhys Davies, Sophie Gironet, and Alex Bozakovic discuss whether this new media landscape is good news for popular architecture criticism, or if the professional voice is drowned out or starved out by sheer volume of opinion. Is this the end of the professional critic? or an unprecedented opportunity to involve an audience in discussions about architecture. Let's go there now. Unfortunately, popular architectural criticism in Canada is frankly almost an oxymoron. In 2002 presentation of the REC, I lamented, well, every third-rate movie, every off-key singer-songwriter passing through town, and every street-corner restaurant gets a review. Architecture, the most significant definer of the quality of our daily lives, is reduced to being the most ignored cultural form. One consequence is built-in design still frequently fails in key ways, from its inability to understand how we experience the street, how we react to scale, how the, bo uh, the human body, in terms of color, light, texture, etc., and mind, in terms of memory, meaning, joy, comfort, uh, challenge, etc., is, is impacted. Putting aside the inevitable misogynist trolls, I would argue that too much of the popular commentary lacks clear and accessible principles of what constitutes good built form. Instead, it is too often quickly becomes the time-honored, end-of-debate assertion, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, or the more truculent, you like what you like, and I like what I like. I was uh, from 1993 until 2004 uh, the only architecture critic in the newspapers in Quebec and I had a whole 1,000 word page to write every week and this was my only job and nowadays there is no column on architecture anymore no regular uh, architectural column in, in uh, Quebec uh, at least because in the newspapers uh, the buses uh, don't understand really what architecture is about and they don't really know where to put you. Are you in culture? Are you in business? Are you? They don't know really. So you're fighting to convince uh, your legitimacy uh, in the eyes of your boss, but you're also fighting to seduce the reader. To me, the only opinion that's really uh, accountable is the opinion of the user. Uh, do, does the, the one who speaks is uh, in relationship with the building, the real one, not images, not photos, but the, the, the real building? And um, has, he, has he had a practice of it? Has, it? has he lived in it or worked in it so that he can talk with informed 
opinion. Um, so first of all, you know, the idea that architecture criticism is in crisis is not unique to the discipline of architecture. Um, you know, as uh, Sophie and as Reese were saying, um, and I think everyone, in fact, so far has, been, has, has mentioned this, but I think it's important to understand that um, this idea that there are fewer professional critics, fewer staff critics covering the field, you know, is a phenomenon of, that goes across the discipline of journalism right now. Um, we have to be conscious when we talk about that for, of, of that fact for two reasons. You know, first of all, um, because I'm not entirely convinced that it is a crisis or that, in fact, that premise is entirely accurate. Um, on the one hand, you know, there are certain people who used to have the job and don't any longer. Um, and, you know, and there is a loss. There has been a loss. But at the same time, if you account f- properly for... Uh, the online outlets that are contributing to the conversation and the people who are committed to it, you know, in a more or less professional way, I think um, there have been some really considerable gains. So the the big challenge uh, and the big asset um, is the blogs. Um, you know, the the big architecture blogs, which I'm sure all of you read uh, religiously, um, you know, really cut both ways. Uh, on the one hand, there is an inherent problem in the distribution of images which have been commissioned by architects um, you know for their own interests uh, and the lack of critical writing that goes with that you know more and more we're consuming architecture as a set of images that have been edited and composed uh, to sell us on the other hand I think it's safe to say that more of us more of the general public is actually engaging with contemporary architecture than has ever been the case Um, And I think it's easy to forget just how far in some ways we've come to get access to this volume of international contemporary architecture 20 years ago or 10 years ago, for that matter. You would have been going to the library and looking through magazines. Uh, And I think that that awareness, you know, which is certainly shaping student projects, you know, is also shaping the way that ordinary people see architecture or at least a certain group of interested readers is seeing architecture. And I think in some ways that that increased knowledge with the lack of criticism that comes with it uh, is, is a benefit to, you know, to those of us who are engaged with contemporary architecture and trying to build awareness of it. When we look back on the, you know, what, what we're sort of casting as the glory days of newspaper criticism, in some ways I think we can be too optimistic. Um, you know, Ada Louise Huxtable almost 60 years ago, basically invented the job of the newspaper architecture critic in the New York Times and was writing twice a week, you know, at 1,000 words or 1,500 words a pop, you know, and the quality of that work is amazing. And it's easy for us to look back on that volume of criticism and say, you know, and, and admire the erudition and admire the quantity of it, and then to look at this and say, well, you know, how far have we fallen? But, you know, I think it's, again, speaking as someone who's, very interested in um, the contemporary practice of architecture and in sort of architecture as, a, as an evolving discipline, I think it's important to realize that when people talk, we are all winning. And it's important not to overlook the, the gains that we, as architecture fanatics, have made by having a broader public engagement, shallow though it may be at times, you know, snarky though it may be, with the, with the things that we care about.
Digital media presents a host of new challenges to architecture critics and the publications they represent, as well as new ways to connect with audiences. We're about to hear a discussion about these changes and how they've shaped the publishing side of architectural criticism. First up is Elsa Lam, editor of the magazine Canadian Architect. Um, so I've been editor for the past uh, four years, and the magazine has been around since 1955. Um, was founded by an architect, Jim Murray. Um, and so if uh, Spacing is a relatively new-ish magazine that was an early adopter on digital. We are a very old magazine uh, who was a very late adopter on uh, digital. Um, I think I started this Twitter account uh, you know, two years ago, maybe. Do they have foundation dates there? 2013, April 2013, there. Um, and uh, and uh, you know, really, it was one of those things that was started, you know, on the side while juggling a, a bazillion other balls. Um, so uh, for us, it, it's still an ongoing experiment in a way, uh, how we use social media, how we incorporate it into the magazine, and, uh, and the kinds of potentials that we can leverage from it. Um, we also have no revenue model associated with social media, so it's, these things are always you know, something that's, that's on the side and something where you're trying to you know, create connections with other people that have good content uh, without necessarily asking them to produce new content, especially for you when you can't pay them. So, you know, so we're linking to our stories and we're trying to create other ways for people to get access to our material. Our subscription base is quite robust. Um, it goes to pretty much every architect in the country, but that, of course, is a sliver of, uh, of, you know, of Canadians, right? And uh, with digital media, the potential, you know, that one of the potentials that I see is a way to, you know, bring out uh, the great content that we've been producing for 60 years now, um, and to try to you know get that in front of a broader audience because I mean the content is there and it, I think that's something that uh, you know that's the biggest that's the big that's the hardest thing to produce right so in theory um, using social networks and 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 developing a more robust digital presence uh, should help us bring uh, kind of bridge this gap that we're talking about of bringing criticism from professional criticism within the trade publication uh, towards popular criticism uh, that could be uh, useful for a broader audience. Next up is spacing publisher Matt Blackett and spacing senior editor Sean McAuliffe as they weigh the pros and cons of digital publishing. It's been a very empowering thing to be able to um, to, to use the digital media and and to become a, a critic in many ways without us actually, and for many of us, not actually being formally trained in the world of planning or, uh, or architecture. The blogs gave us this chance to kind of respond really quickly to issues that came up because like the magazine is three, four months uh, in production. Um, and I think it let us bring in all these different voices. Somebody wanted, would, you know, pitch us, can we post about something? Uh, can, we po can I post about this, respond to police carding or something like that going on in Toronto, a political thing, and we could do it. The downside of the digital, our digital, is that there's no revenue model, so we can't pay people uh, to the way we can with the magazine because it has the old model. Um, a couple times we've gotten nice grants to work on specific issues. Uh, one time I think it was public art to cover. Another time it was social justice issues, which was really awesome because we could say to some great writers in the city, can you write about this social justice issue in the suburbs? And we could do that. 
I got on Twitter in 2008, two years, I guess, after the platform had been going. And uh, I, I just started tweeting uh, my walks through Toronto. At, the, at that point, I was researching my first book, uh, which was called Stroll. It was 32 different walks, rambles, psychogeographic rambles through the city. And I would, uh, at that point, I was just texting on my flip phone, texting in my observations. And then when I got home to my computer, I would see the responses. Um, and I was really wonderfully surprised at the, the kind of engagement it had because I was in far-flung neighborhoods from my downtown neighborhood and people would say, uh, oh, you should have checked out this um, or you're, you're wrong about this. Um, it's actually like this. Um, so it had this great uh, kind of sharing of both information and this kind of almost like real-time fact check about uh, the, the, my observations and people kind of nudging me in different directions or, or just outright pushing me in different directions when I was totally wrong about something. Um, and it was very messy, again, but it, uh, it kind of like sussed out my public... I, I think of it as my public notebook. Um, I have another notebook, which is more private things, but I, when I, on Twitter, I'm just kind of spitting things out um, out into the world, and, and they interact with other people in these wonderful ways. And I think that kind of level of engagement, that, chitter, that chatty engagement about place uh, and, and buildings, uh, again, hopefully brings people into that thing without kind of lecturing. Though every once in a while I turn on like the lecture rant uh, thing and, and rant about politics or, or in Toronto or elsewhere. Finally, we hear Blackett, Lamb, David Theodore and McAuliffe discuss the mechanics of social media for critics. I, I find it really interesting how how, how we do engage uh, in a different different types of uh, new media platforms that, that are available to us. The engagement is is different, um, and I think we, we, we see that. So on on, on Twitter, in many ways, um, it's short and it's concise, and sometimes it can be <laughs> the reaction can be construed in the wrong way. I feel like when I'm using social media, even when it's my personal social media accounts. Um, you know, I kind of have to be a bit careful about um, how, you know, how candidly I express my opinion of various, you know, of buildings, basically. Uh, so it's, you know, so I feel like, you know, the promise of social media being a free and open kind of forum for expression, it doesn't really work in, you know, in the particular case of our magazine anyways. Uh, but then we're still walking the same fine lines of, you know, of how critical, how critical can one be? And, um, and then that's just being transposed to my personal social networks as opposed to, you know, to staying confined in the kind of uh, public arena of the magazine, per se. I guess what I'm not comfortable with is the idea that what we want from critics is their opinions. Don't quite think that's how it works. Uh, and, you know, Twitter and Facebook are all about people's opinions. So that would mark a genuine shift in what criticism is for and about if it's about people's opinions suddenly. Um, and then the other part of it is that revenue model that you mentioned. Uh, newspaper, no, sorry, architectural criticism is tightly tied to the rise of the print industry, so daily newspapers and magazines that would pay for you to go to Bilbao and review the building. That model is gone, and architectural criticism in that way will disappear with it. Uh, I just don't think that social media's opinions will replace whatever whatever that thing is lost. And again, what's lost there that people who go to university and get educated care about is the writing about something. And whether it's about architecture or anything else, what we're losing 
what we're not having on the social media platforms that we are on the 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 web more broadly conceived is a place for um, uh, literary writing, writing about writing, writing that people do very well. So there are very few people who who write well on Twitter, though there are some. There's so few places to do long-form, thoughtful writing that actually pays you enough money to spend the time thinking that we've gradu- um, gravitated over to Twitter and these other platforms because we can just do it. Um, and, uh, and, and I don't think... I don't. The cause and effect is is, is murky there, um, but but it's an outlet where there is. There, I think there used to be more of that outlet, um, and there's less space. Even in newspapers, I have 600 words, which I push to like 750 sometimes. Um, and the other thing I was thinking of is a drawback to social media is it's totally unequal. Um, I can take in a, a fairly outrageous stand on something that I know is kind of provoking, poking people a little bit, and I would not get nearly as much blowback as a woman or a person of color who gets, and just watching people I know who are in this realm on Twitter and social media, the amount of, uh, well, the Twitter eggs, those anonymous dudes, uh, but everything else, uh, just, you know, like actual human beings with faces um, that that say the same thing, um, and you can just see the the difference in the response from people uh, uh, taking it seriously or just, like, pushing back for no uh, pu- pushing back over the top for for, for different um, kinds of people. On on the positive side, because you also asked that. I mean, you know, it's also obviously a really powerful tool for for leveraging you know for leveraging popular opinion and for advocacy um, when the cause is right. One, I, I'm going to give one other just like I think positive thing and something that we it's have to consider in in, in the world of architecture and, and, and city building, things don't happen at the speed. They, they're, they're happening at the same speed they've been happening at for a long time where our technology has made things quicker and quicker and quicker. And just to give an example, I, I, uh, I, I was in Copenhagen seven years ago. Uh, I was, every day I was writing a blog post about what I had seen and uh, put up some f- f- photography about it. Um, and when I came back, uh, and, and so I probably did about 15 posts in the, the, the six weeks that I, that I was away. And when I came back, the Toronto Star approached me to write uh, 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 two articles about cycling culture in, in Copenhagen and what Toronto can, can learn from that. Um, and it was, it was something that I found to be, like, I, I, you know, someone in the media, I knew this was really, like, I, I knew the speed, I knew these things would happen. But I stepped back and I thought about, um, what it would have happened if I had visited Copenhagen 10 years ago uh, before that. So I, I had gone in 2009. So if I had gone in 1999, I would have gone and I would have taken photographs on film and then I would have come back and then I would have had to find somewhere to write that article. Someone would have to agree to pay me <laughs> and pay to put it in their magazine. Um, it would have been weeks and weeks, if not months after I had actually been there that that article would have appeared and in fact you know I was writing it the the day of in in, in Copenhagen and um, what I in covering city politics and 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 city building issues um, the the one thing that we can do is we can go around the world now and 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 take photographs and spread them really easily and we all at home can say why don't we have that and you can complain about that and it's 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 a really good source of inspiration but it's also i think this something that we can't get over in our mind because of how quick our technology uh, communication uh, moves right now. That we're at the point where uh, we, we want our government 
planet and we want our city building to move at that pace, probably not that quickly, but um, we do want it to happen that quickly in, in many ways. And, it, and it's, a, it's a challenge to get things done. And so, you know, the constant things that we hear all the time is like it takes forever to get things done in this city, whatever city that you're in. Uh, I was in Copenhagen and architects were complaining about how long it took to get things done there. And, you know, so I've heard that multiple times for the cities of architects here. Um, and so I think that's one of our challenges is expectations and, and, and uh, media or new media uh, um, uh, makes us impatient for the change that we need because city building doesn't happen um, at, at the pace that I think we all want it to, want it to happen. It's tough to say what the future holds when we talk about this new media landscape. We may not be able to fully imagine what popular architectural criticism may look like a decade from now. Who will our critics be? Where will they publish? How will they make a living in a world where content is expected to be free? Whether or not there is a crisis in Canadian criticism depends largely on what you think a critic's role should be. So, instead, we give final word to Sophie Gironnet, founder of La Maison de l'Architecture du Québec, and longtime former critic for Le Devoir. Well, first of all, I'm not sure about decline of paper media. That's that's for one. Uh, of course, paper itself is declining. Uh, trees are disappearing. But um, I don't think that medias with uh, editors and uh, the, the way we know it, with the same hierarchy of authority, uh, will disappear. Um, also... I mean, it's just a support, a different support. Uh, what is different is, of course, the um, the ability for anyone to so so called quote unquote publish uh, what he has written, and um, that's just uh, making more noise. And the reader or the consumer of all that information has to do a selection, but they're on they're only twenty four hours in a day. So when in the end, you are choosing who you are going to read. You read the one who writes best or the one who, whom you know has done his research and is more uh, accountable for what he writes. So you go, in fact, to the paper that is uh, produced uh, in the same way as uh, old, in the old days with uh, some control on the contents. And, uh, so I, I don't think there's a, that huge change in fact but you're looking for a certain amount of curation yes there is uh, yes uh, i think the 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 person well i'm i'm trying to be to to put myself in the place of the 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 one who reads who looks for information uh the sources are different now you you know what your friend has seen uh, when traveling and he sends photos of such and such and such building and he likes it and you like it that's that's one thing but when you are looking for serious uh uh developed uh, description or critic uh, you look for something that you can uh, count on as being accountable like, accountable and, and legitimate and then you select you t- you have a tendency to select uh, the best uh, uh, the most trustworthy articles so but it doesn't prevent uh, many many different forms to to crop up And that is our PopCan Crit Special. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show, please tell your office holiday party, your flight attendant, and your family back home. And as always, if you rate and subscribe on iTunes, you'd be helping us reach a broader audience. 
We'll be back in the new year with some fresh episodes. Pop Can Crit was presented by Spacing Magazine and the Israeli School of Architecture, with funding support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. Sponsors were the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada, Carleton Immersive Media Studio, Carleton U's Faculty of Engineering and Design, and the Ontario Association of Architects. Thanks to supporters The Arc Hotel, Astley Gilbert, Fauna, Building 22, and La Maison de l'Architecture du Québec. Organizers are Kristen Gagnon, Bryn Campbell, Matthew Blackett, and Stephen Fye. I produce this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. Technical support was provided by PixelPie Productions at pixelpi.ca. Hit us up with any questions, comments, concerns, and scoops on Twitter at Spacing Radio, all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto. Until next time, thanks so much for spending the first season with us. We'll see you in the new year. Cheers. Cheers.